0: And welcome back to episode three of Voices of Biotech. This episode, editor of Bioprocess Insider, Millie Nelson, sits down with the CEO of Terumo Blood and Cell Technologies, Anthony Gowan. They discuss the historical bias within the life science industry, the issue of the risk that's still felt when hiring minorities, and the importance of making sure that all voices and ideas are heard regardless of where they come from. So stay tuned to listen to their discussion, and I will hand over to Millie now.
1: globally women are making up 49% of the workforce in the life science field. And that got me thinking, you know, is it a sense that there's not enough women in the sector if they're nearly half? Or is it more so that the women who are making up that 49% aren't holding a lot of the higher positions in the field? And that seems to be male dominated.
2: Um, So, I'd unpack that from a couple of directions. When you think of the life sciences field, you have a big group that is startups and innovation ideas. And then you have well established organizations that are global, uh, role, you know, leaders in their spaces. If you look at that startup environment, there's tremendous data that shows 95%. Of the venture capital and private equity funding goes to men. And if you and I talk to my colleagues in those spaces, there's still a bias and a perception that if a woman brings an idea, it's risk. And we know VC, that, that's what it is, it is about risk. But there's something in our wiring that that pauses us. And on the other half, when I think about the representation at the, in the large corporations, and I serve on the board of AdvaMed, um, we're doing a lot of, AdvaMed represents the medical device industry, and we're doing a lot to try to uh, improve that representation. What I see are, we have historical biases, and as leaders, we have to f- dig those out and eradicate them and the two that come to mind often, and maybe these are just pet peeves, but when we talk about women in leadership roles, you'll hear people quickly refer to the pipeline. Well, we don't have a pipeline. And so we tend to look outside of our organizations instead of in. Women aren't in hiding. People of color aren't in hiding. How are you finding those people in your organization now and making them feel included, make sure their voice is heard, and respected and embraced. But that in that pipeline debate, there's language that creeps in about risk that's associated with hiring people who aren't the majority figure. So think, you know, in both of those areas, you're talking about risk from a different perspective, Mm -hmm. but it's all of our interpretation about risk. Because some may say risk, others see opportunity.
1: Yeah, but it seems That's a really high statistic that, you know, 95 percent of this funding is going towards men from the beginning. You're almost or most people, I would assume, are then less likely to have these opportunities or having to work extra hard to become visible to get the same opportunities that maybe male counterparts haven't worked as hard for. Maybe haven't had to kind of prove that point of needing that funding.
2: Yeah, well, and I would maybe reframe that. The men are working hard as well. It's not about working hard, it is about that visibility. And in observation, you know, I have many uh, miles on the odometer, as they say. I think if you are the only in a room, the only woman, minority, name it, only female scientist, um, you feel a pressure whether you realize it or not to represent your kind mm-hmm. you know I hear phrases you know people say well what do the women think and they ask me and I'm like wow I'm now speaking on behalf of half of the world like I'm really important yeah. but that's not reality right women are so diverse uh, just as humans are diverse yeah. but it's real easy to put things into different buckets but so what I see is a a, a hesitance if you're the only, I call it in my own head the 90% right. Right? If I will I speak up unless I think I'm 100% right. And even then, if I speak up, I'm a little worried about stepping on people's toes because we've been trained over years. Women are the peacekeepers. Women keep things going. We prevent the crises. So you know there used to be a phrase many years ago. Behind every man, there's a good woman. And that because somebody was keeping the peace and making sure things are running that's shifted. But all of our wiring and our norms haven't always shifted. And as yeah. women, it's just, it isn't isolated to men or women. So how do you break through that and say, it's okay to overcome your own cautiousness? Mm-hmm. And you might be 90%, right? But you're part of the conversation.
1: Definitely. I, I, I mean, this is me personally thinking, but I can imagine that's exacerbated in a workplace environment maybe that idea of should I speak out if I'm only sure I'm 90% because you're not with your friends necessarily or in that kind of social environment of being comfortable with everybody and if you are to speak out in a work environment you have a little bit more risk or something could happen where you think I really wish I hadn't said that now and I I guess that probably holds
2: people back. Well it's it's psychological safety if you, feel, there's things you say, or maybe you make a goofy joke with your friends, you don't talk about it. In the workplace, you are being evaluated. You know, people used to talk about visibility. I need more visibility. Well, visibility is a double-edged sword because you better be, read, you know, I, the phrase was, you know, Icarus flew too close to the sun yeah. and his wings melted off, but but you have to be prepared and understand and respect the role but not be fearful of it. And, and I'll use a this, and this never goes away. So just as a simple example, uh, you know, I joined Teramo. This is a hundred-year-old Japanese company, and I'm speaking at the Japanese board for the first time. I'm nervous. I'm pretty good on my feet, but I've prepared. I even have my opening comments in Japanese, and I was so nervous about the, and the protocols very proper I was so nervous, I just threw the Japanese out the window. I'm like, don't, Mm -hmm. don't do it. And I thought, why am I so afraid to try? And I will say the next time I tried, Japanese is a complicated language. I I tried and everyone laughed. And I said, come on guys, I'm trying really hard. (laughs) But I brought them along with me and I tried to understand what made them laugh. But there was, you know, so there's, and you can interpret their laughing at me or you can interpret it a lot of different ways. And in this case they were laughing because the the dialect and the, the intonation I used was so proper. They oh. it was funny because I'm not a prop I'm not such a stuffy proper
1: <laughs> But then I, I think that you tried and that's admirable for definite.
2: But it's still fearful, right? You definitely have to, everyone has to face their own fears and often they are ours. Others when I say I'm fearful people say what you're so confident i've seen you speak at the united nations right but i still have we all have those things and they're part of being human what we do to overcome that and realize that isn't how i'm necessarily perceived
1: and how do you think that comes in how you put that into your leadership that idea that you can be a bit vulnerable you can fear things but you can still succeed in your role
2: Yeah. Well, I will say early in my career, you know, I was this young farm girl who had no corporate sophistication whatsoever. And I was used to I worked really, really hard. And, you know, people gave you feedback. And I started my career with GE where you were getting feedback every six weeks, three months. It was very intense and very. Mm -hmm. But I also did not. I was so naive that I didn't hesitate if someone senior said something I thought was wrong. I was like, hang on, you know, that's wrong. Okay. And my my boss said, you can't talk that way. He's the, you know, CEO of blah, blah, blah. And I started getting weepy. And he said, you you cannot cry. Like, don't cry. And that made me like start crying more, right? Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, what happened? I thought I did such a good job, right? You know, I'm all And And I remember this gentleman said to me, There is no room for empathy in business. And I think about that because that is how we operated, right? You had Mm -hmm. stuff going on. I was a working mom, kids, trauma, drama. Uh, You never brought that to the workplace. Mm -hmm. But I believe if you cannot bring your full self to the workplace, then you will not thrive and we will not get the best out of you and you will eventually leave. And I won't have that loyalty. So, we have to understand everyone goes through personal journeys, particularly on the heels of COVID, mm-hmm. when there's been so much loss and shifts and darkness, frankly, that's entered our lives. We can't expect people to put that in a box and lock it away. Definitely. We can try at times. You've got to turn your head around, but, but you have to understand that and help people say, hey, it's okay. And we're not going to you know, kick you off the curb because you had a bad moment.
1: I- I think as well, not to sound morbid, but you spend more time at work than you do at home, or at least even if you're doing hybrid working,
2: you're working
1: five days a week, you're off two days a week for most people. So it's very hard to separate things that are going on in your personal life from your working life because it will affect your performance. So it makes complete sense to have empathy in the workplace especially for people that you want to stay in the company and have that rapport with so I, i'd completely agree with you on that going back i guess a bit more to specific um, thinking about like the representation of women in the field what are terimo doing to kind of attract women to the company retain women in the company is there anything in particular
2: yeah i when I would say a couple of specific things. The first is when to understand people say this has to change over decades and years. We've been at it for decades and years. But the first is to make sure you are, it sounds so simple, posting positions and having diverse slates. And by doing that and not just externally, internally and making sure you are you have objective criteria and you are really separating the results from the values and the personnel, that automatically elevates and normalizes the playing field. And we've done that. My leadership team, you know, when I joined the company six years ago, out of our top 150 people in blood and cell technologies, there were about three or four women. Now my direct staff is 50% female. And they're, they're, it's a high performing group of people. We have mm-hmm. external folks, internal folks, but we started by really being objective about our own talent pool, getting rid of that bias about the pipeline.
1: That's really interesting. I, I can't remember. I should know, but I went to an event in May this year and somebody a female did a talk about her company and I'll have to find the article and I'll send you it. But it was really interesting about how you not only attract talent, but you retain talent. And lots of it was about the idea, you know, you don't leave necessarily a bad workplace. Most people leave a bad manager or bad leadership and implementing core values and making sure that your values align. And they were saying that they're going down the road of not necessarily looking on paper that everybody has these tick boxes of qualifications, but actually is this person likable are they somebody who's going to fit into the team and they were saying that you know we've now started going for people also on that personality traits rather than going for people based purely on you can do this well you can do this well so that they gel as a a team and keep
2: people there well think about this so there's two pieces one is how you develop people internally and how you assess Mm -hmm. we look at results versus values. And our values across TruMall, we refreshed them about like, three or four years ago across the globe and really came down to one of our core values is respect. But what does that mean? Respect is making sure all voices are heard, all ideas are heard, regardless of where they come from. And that is really important. And where you have to be careful is when you start doing those assessments. I, you know, there's a famous study. Uh, if you look at some of the AI work that's being done, where Google hired one of the foremost AI experts to help automate resume selection, and what happened is it turned out 96% white males, because their criteria were very focused on who had been successful in their mm-hmm. culture today. So what you have to think about is if I'm going to bring in diverse backgrounds and ideas and connect the artist with the scientist, then my culture has to change. So there you have to balance the fit in with my culture today. Think about how am I building for the culture tomorrow, right? By by design, organizations are set up to do yesterday's work. And the world we're in today with remo- what we're doing today in the past wouldn't have happened because we didn't have the tools and capabilities. So okay. it changes how we connect and when we connect and whether we can connect.
1: Definitely. And um, thinking, obviously, diversity and inclusion the past few years, the conversation seems to definitely be more forthright or at least more companies are talking about it. And I know not necessarily. Every company, they might be speaking about it, but they might not actually have the tools and the education behind it in actually implemented in the company to make a difference. Um, and I was speaking to Nadine Ritter about this and, you know, not seeing diversity and inclusion as a tick pocket exercise where you might say to your employees, you have a 20 minute course you need to attend about diversity and inclusion and you may you have to get nine out of the 10 answers right. And once you completed it, that's it. Having those conversations kind of ingrained in your values and I was just wondering, did Terumo have a diversity and inclusion board or is there kind of open spaces to, to
2: discuss yeah, that topic? So, so a couple of things. Um, over the past two years, we have formalized a lot of that work. We have a diversity, uh, equity and inclusion council. We have rolled out some trainings around things like microaggression and what does that really mean? And what I what I've realized is there's a couple of found philosophical foundations. One Diversity is not a project. It's Mm -hmm. humanity, right? And if we want to really serve more patients, which is our governing philosophy, how can I effectively serve those patients if I don't hear them, respect them, understand what Mm -hmm. they're talking about, right? And that's fundamental. So as we go through these trainings, there are some folks saying, I don't understand why this is a big deal, or it feels It can feel threatening that, oh, it's just the women advocating or LGBTQ or whatever. This Mm -hmm. is for everyone. It doesn't matter. You could be young, old. There are comments people make. They have no idea they're being offensive. And when you unpack it and people say, I never realized, I'll I'll use a simple example. In the U.S., there's a phrase uh, when somebody isn't following the party line, people would use the phrase, well, they're going off the reservation. Okay. People didn't understand that that was tied back to our horrible treatment of Native American Indians, where we forced them on reservations, towing the line. They were going off. Right. But so that's a colloquialism. that's Language. And then when you understand the history, you say, oh, my goodness, I would never use that phrase. Right. But you didn't
1: know. And you have that period of self-reflection where you think, gosh, did I say
2: it in front of that person? Well, and I, had I said it, right, but to be able yeah. to, and even I've had a few people say, hey, did you know where this came from or why that phrase came up? And we don't know. You heard somebody say it and you just repeated it. Oh, yeah. I, thought, I thought this group was called whatever. So we have to be open and say it's not a judgment on me. Mm-hmm. It's about making that other person comfortable.
1: Definitely. And I, I would argue that the education purposes of that, having those slightly maybe difficult conversations of where someone was to say, oh, like, do you know where that saying comes from? It it could be really offensive to to people. It shouldn't be said. They're good conversations to have because that's how people are going to learn, grow, move from it. And it's not necessarily a a personal attack. It's a a conversation an educational conversation
2: right well and think about the foundation of that is how do you create a safe respectful environment so that just like you're with your friends because we've all had this even with your friends mm-hmm. they'll say something and you're like hang up I didn't I don't like that right yeah sometimes you just don't talk to them for a while and then you call them later like hey I'm really annoyed because you said whatever so it doesn't always happen in real time but understanding you What you tolerate becomes your culture. And if people feel comfortable having those conversations, it may give people pause, but it's the right thing to do. And it's the hardest thing to do. It's not easy.
1: I can imagine it being a bit uncomfortable in some situations because I can assume that for some people that would be they've attacked me or they think that I think what I've just said about people, this group, and then that becomes like a personal attack rather than a this is what it means. This is why we shouldn't say things like that. But um, I would definitely agree that it's conversations worth having and creating those safe workspaces and having the, like you said about having microaggression tools, they are good things to have. And every company, I think you do need those refreshing courses of that that are coming up, but it also has to have that real drive behind it where it's not seen as a project and a tick tick box, but it's seen value culture.
2: Well, and think about too, I I look at in the workplace, you're creating a different kind of community. We all belong to different communities. It could be a triathlon club, a church, a school organization, what have you. But in this community, the more you understand about the whole person. So, we have a women's network. Um, we will women inspiring, leading, and learning, and that group creates a forum to just have a conversation that's different. As an example, we have uh, Gene Stallone, our new R&D leader, comes out of Medtronic, ex-military guy. He was the featured person at the We Will network, so that people could understand his background and how to interface with him. And that's helpful because it gives people yet a different perspective. So, you know, there's a there's how do you show people successes and how you overcame? But the more I really believe the more we understand people's backstories and the diverse paths they've taken, you develop a different kind of respect and a different comfort level. Because Mm -hmm. now everybody feels comfortable calling Jean and saying, hey, I yeah. want you to know this or you might not have heard that. Right. But but we have to create those opportunities because we put a late. I'm the CEO. Right. People will say to me, I'm not going to say that to the CEO. <laughs> We're kind of past that. People say everything to me. So <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's nice, though, because I think that, you know, a lot of people I speak to in the corporate world that the CEO normally you don't meet them. Like, especially if you're in a big corporation, you might see them around the office once or twice, but you know that they maybe don't know your name or, you know, that you wouldn't probably feel comfortable knocking on their door and being like, oh, have a Nata or X, Y, Z. So I think that's really lovely and important because you're definitely probably going to get more out of your employees. Yeah. And that leads me nicely to my next question. Do you think having a lack of diversity can Im- impact business outcome?
2: Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, you know, I'll give you just some simple examples. Actually, I'll talk about an old study uh, that was done. So almost 20 years ago now, the Institute of Medicine did the first work on healthcare disparities. And what they showed is independent of socioeconomic status, you have vastly different outcomes for men, women, and people of color. So my husband and I same company, same insurance, same education level. If we present at the hospital with chest pains, I am four times as likely to die as he is. My black counterpart, female, is 10 times as likely to die. And we said, well, how is this possible, right? I started just investigating this on my uh-huh. own because is this discrimination? Is this bias? That doesn't make sense. But you have to peel 10 layers deep. And if and in that case, there are things where... There are very few women at the time, few women cardiologists, few cardiologists Mm -hmm. of color, but more importantly, the clinical trials that had built all the heart standards, the framing and heart standards, which were the gold standard for cardiology, were all done on middle-aged white males. And you know what? Our hearts do beat differently. Our electrical wiring inside is different. We started digging into that. And this is 20 years ago. We said, well, we can change some of the algorithms in our system to pick up that lower frequency. And how do I change the diagnostic protocols? So no one's doing anything wrong. But women are dying at exponential rates from the same problem. There was huge, you'll see the Wear Red campaign with the American Heart Association Mm -hmm. to drive awareness around these things. But way back when, this was kind of saying, well, this is women's health. It's not, you know, so we've come a long way, but it's still wildly misunderstood. But that's a great example. You can save lives. And it's good business and it's the right thing to do just by diversifying your clinical trials.
1: And investigating a, a, a new road, I guess. how How is this going to work in a woman's body? How is this going to work in a man's why? body?
2: why. Yeah, well, and yeah. I, I use the word ecosystem a lot with my team. How do you understand the ecosystem in which your products are being used, in which that patient is making a choice? And think about it. There's stats that in most countries... Women make 80% of the healthcare decisions. Think about your own home, decide mm-hmm. when the kids go to, to the doctor. You know, in my family, it was, you know, my kids were always scamming. It was like, if you're not bleeding, you're going to school. So, you know, <laughs> up with band aids. But, but you think about that role women play in healthcare. So, why wouldn't be women, in fact, be overrepresented in yeah. shaping the healthcare system in which they operate? right? Definitely. So you have to think about how do I walk in that person's shoes? And it's a lot easier if you've been in those shoes and you understand that, right? The way you design your ethnographic research will be different. The way you design your community outreach will be different. We, we do tremendous work with sickle cell disease, affects a huge portion of the African-American community. And there are genetic factors that are very specific. Well, if I am more diverse, I am more likely to understand that mm-hmm. and have interacted with someone who's had sickle cell disease and understand the debilitation it creates, the pain. That will change how I think about mobilizing people.
1: Yeah, building that bond. And I'm sure from a business perspective, like you said, if you can save more lives, if it's a sickle cell disease is predominantly affecting African-Americans, it just makes logical sense to then have your trial obviously diverse with African-Americans. So you can see real life results, the people it's probably going to impact most. Yeah. Uh, so it doesn't make sense to leave groups of people out who could be affected, or at least more so affected.
2: Well, and, and you know, the other thing I'd say, and, and I talk about this with my peers at AdvoMed and other CEOs, it is easy to speak to people with whom you have a relationship comfortable and think about it your your family you grew up in a little microcosm and there's things that forms your beliefs your values mm-hmm. biases if you I grew up in this small town in the middle of nowhere there was no diversity you were mm-hmm. polish and you know you immigrated there and everyone had the same backstory right so how do you make sure you are opening up and understanding that your experience't is everyone else's it doesn't have been a rural area, your experience with healthcare is very different than if you grew up in a metropolitan city. If you grew up in a well-served area, you happen to be where there's a lot of research universities. So there's so many variables that can influence it. The more diverse your employee base is, the more likely you're going to understand all those permutations Mm -hmm. and get creative at the beginning of a design and at the beginning of a process so that you're really coming up with something that's holistic and best for a a bigger population.
1: And I mean like you just said growing up in different places even think of UK and America there's complete different in healthcare there you know we know that we have challenges with free healthcare but then we also know that America has paid for healthcare and the differences that even come with that must create a completely different outlook to how you would book a doctor's appointment or how you would go to hospital if you needed to. You know like some people here probably would go to A&E pretty quickly if something bad happened or they thought something bad had happened because you know there's not going to be a bill put through your door at the end of it.
2: Yeah, uh, just to maybe bring that point home. I was 22, 23, young chipmunk, uh, living in London, working for GE to help open a commercial real estate office. Yeah. I had a terrible ear infection. And I was supposed to be going home, uh, you know, in a couple of days, but I didn't have any money. I was so ridiculously poor. I had this little flat, you know, and so I just didn't go. And then it got so bad. I had to because there's no way I could fly or or travel. They said, well, do you have your ID card? And I was, you know, I was treated and I, to this day, I'm eternally grateful to that physician. She's like, yeah, it's embarrassing. Of course, we would take care <laughs> of your encoded eardrum or whatever. But think about that. I would have chosen to not get care because I didn't yeah. have- Ash.
1: and would have waited. And it, it could have got a lot worse.
2: Well, if you'd I have got on the
1: so, I mean, we've kind of touched upon the solutions um, that could improve the representation of women in the field. I always ask this question when I speak about subjects like this. And I, I, I'm not sure if it's the best thing to ask because it's maybe quite fluid. But in terms of timeline, you know, you've been saying you've been working on this for so many years. And it's probably naive to think maybe in the near future, you're probably never going to eradicate all prejudices and but where would you see Terumo let's say in five years or where would you hope to see them in five years with their diversity inclusion initiatives
2: I well I guess for I've been at this for so long I think everywhere Mm -hmm. that people just stop seeing it as an initiative and they Mm -hmm. see business and I think for those people who are you know for women and anyone who's new in role, uh, minority, you're the first in an environment, believe the evidence about yourself. Someone mm-hmm. said that to me many years ago, they said, why aren't you more confident, right? You, Why not? Well, believe what you've accomplished. But also, you don't have to prove yourself in every meeting. Yeah. You have a role, speak up, right? You're only going to learn by putting yourself out there. And sometimes, it's going to be unpleasant, but it's mm-hmm. unpleasant for anyone. It's having that courage and doing that. And I think as as corporate leaders really look in the mirror, look at the data and look at why is your retention rate uh, wildly different for different mm-hmm. populations? If your turnover for African-Americans in your organization is 10 times the rate of everyone else, it's not them, it's you. Yeah, that's a problem. And we'll say things like, well, people didn't fit in. What did you do to help them fit in? And it goes back to our earlier point on you're not necessarily trying to fit the culture you have. You want to make sure you're evolving the culture to where it needs to be. And we all have things we can improve, right? There's things we do well we don't, we we don't do well. So I, you know, I I um I am part of a hundred-year-old Japanese company and I'm part of our senior governance layer, if you will, the, the mm-hmm. group managing executive officer, this is an acknowledgement, not just of the work we've done as a business, but that we're looking at people based on results and values. Mm-hmm. And there's an alignment there. And I will say by me being in that role, there's a hundred women out there who didn't think that was possible. That that's, could be reality, right? i I had the pleasure to meet Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, sorry, a long time ago, who invented the Star Wars franchise. And he always, he gets asked, how do you come up with these things? Mm-hmm. He said, You can't build something if you can't imagine it. And I think about that at a personal level. Right. I was this little girl growing up on a farm. No one said, oh, you're going to go shape healthcare one day. Right? <laughs> I was, you know, you look around. I saw nuns. I saw different people. Right. You, you, you have to if you can't. It's hard to imagine that unless you think it's possible. So I would just say as corporate leaders, paint the picture of what's possible and be bold. And just if we think of everyone's human, we're all equal. We've all got a voice and put that respect wrapper around it. You're going to you're going to see big changes.
1: And to me, I feel like that sounds it's something ingrained. It's a value that's ingrained. It's not an initiative that's taking place. It's just a constant that's there. Um, and the constant, that's a good. Yeah. Way. Yeah.
2: And I. Like it's humanity, a right. Definitely. <laughs> and th- what what defines humanity? Diversity and change. Mm-hmm
1: definitely and it's a different conversation but I can remember having a um watching a talk about sustainability and um somebody i think GSK had released a sustainability report and the people who were on the stage leading this like fireside chat were saying You know, we've been doing that for years, but we just don't feel that we have to shout about it all the time because it's something that should just be done. It's not something necessarily that needs to be kind of publicized and praised. And I understand to a certain extent what they mean by that. I also understand why companies would want to promote what they're doing with topics that are considered, I guess, hot topics. But I think it's that idea that once something becomes so ingrained and it's a, oh, you should be doing that anyway, and it hits that point the conversation then doesn't become so poignant and brought up all the time because it's something that everyone's like, that's a standard thing that should be happening in a company anyway. And we shouldn't be necessarily saying well done for doing what should be happening.
2: <laughs> well, and think about, I, I always go back to, you have to walk the talk, right? That's a simple uh-huh. phrase. but. Just about every, I think by law in the U.S., every job posting says we do not discriminate based on race, creed, blah, blah, blah. But if I'm interviewing with a company, I don't go look at their disclaimers in the annual report. And I go to the interview and I look around and say, you had 42 people interview me and I only met one person who looks like me. Right. Yeah. I, lo- I feel you feel it. It's visible. And if you talk to some senior leaders around the world who have made great progress, they would say, how did you move the needle? They said, I just put everybody's pictures on the wall and then had my senior team come in and say, do you think we're diverse, right? Mm-hmm. Like like we see this, right? There's some mm-hmm. evidence of that. That's not always going to guarantee diverse thinking, but you have to take it from every angle. It's been so lovely to
1: chat. It's been so interesting. I've really, really enjoyed it. I hope you have too.
2: I would just encourage everyone. These always sound like when you use words like inequity, discrimination, they're so big, so judgmental. Set the judgment aside. Think about what you can do today to meet one person who isn't like you and understand mm-hmm. the world a little more. A thousand random acts of kindness and openness and respect will help move the needle and get us to that tipping point we talked about.
0: Thank you for listening to episode three of voices of biotech next month we will be bringing you a podcast recorded at our event bpi europe where you can expect a range of different perspectives and interviewees all discussing diversity within the life sciences this year's event will be held the 9th and 12th of may in amsterdam and features over 120 scientific case studies and new data presentations designed to improve speed lower costs and increase quality across all phases of bioprocessing If you are interested, podcast listeners can receive a 10% discount to attend when you book with the VIP code podcast10 online at www.bioprocesseurope.com. But for now, enjoy the next month and you'll hear from us soon. Thank you and goodbye.